Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Friday, November 4th, 2022, and this show will be rebroadcast live on Co-op Radio on Monday, November 7th, 2022, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 131st post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis, with your host, Pedro Gatos. Again, thanks for joining us. We have a sensational show tonight, as quite frankly, we have every Monday night. If your interest is to get as close to the truth as any news and analysis show will allow you, then you are in the right place. Welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness, where we invite you to join in our weekly pursuit for social justice, a pursuit where we seek to separate fact from fiction and where we acknowledge uncertainty, a pursuit where we seek to deconstruct deceit by identifying where unproven allegations are presented as fact through repetition in the absence of evidence, and where uncertainties are approached from a humble, critical thinking perspective, because our interest is in deconstructing deceit and depression, not enabling it. Tonight we have Latin American historian expert Dr. Guillaume Long, former Ecuadorian permanent representative to the UN, and former Minister of Foreign Affairs and Minister of Culture and Minister of Knowledge and Human Talent in the Ecuadorian Cabinet of President Carilla. We discuss the recent Brazilian elections and the implications of U.S. foreign policy in Latin America. Enjoy. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos. Today is Friday, November the 4th, 2022. This program will be aired on Monday, November the 7th, 2022. It's my great pleasure to welcome back to bringing light into darkness, Guillaume Long. Welcome, Guillaume. Welcome back and thank you for your time this morning. No, thank you very much, Pedro, for having me. Warm greetings to everybody listening to us. Well, thank you. Well, let me properly introduce our guest before we get started today. Guillaume Long is a senior policy analyst at the Center for Economic Policy Research. He has held a number of cabinet positions in the government of Ecuador under Rafael Carrillo's administration, including Minister of Foreign Affairs, Minister of Culture, and Minister of Knowledge and Human Talent, most recently serving as Ecuador's permanent representative to the United Nations in Geneva. Dr. Long is trained as a historian and holds a PhD in international politics from the University of London. 
His research is focused primarily on foreign policy of Latin American states, regionalism and integration in Latin America, something that I'm very fond of. And those of you that have studied the history of Central and South America may be aware of Simon Bolivar's vision of unifying and integrating all of these states of the South in response to trying to overcome much of the poverty that has occurred as a result of colonialism and neocolonialism. So first of all, Guillaume, welcome back to Bringing Light into Darkness. Yeah, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be, to be on your show. Looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, me too. I'd like to just frame our conversation. I put together some information here that I think will give our listeners a better perspective that you can then work from. I think a major element of measuring the morality or immorality of the foreign policy of the United States and its interventions is measured through empirical documentation of quality of life outcomes for majority populations in the countries in which it intervenes. And this has happened in a host of countries. There's examples that we've given in, in the past and I want to go back to. Regarding these interventions, the, the multiple coups that we've promoted, including like the ones in Haiti under Aristide and his Lavalis party, who in, in 1990 became the first democratically elected president and less than a year later was couped out in 1991. And then again in 2004, we facilitated a coup in Haiti. The result of which all of the human rights advances that the Aristide and Lavalis party had introduced, the huge improvements in quality of life indices such as education, the reduction of poverty and hunger, the building of hospitals, the reduction of literacy. Just do a quick study and or send an email to this show and we will provide you with a Google link to that history that we documented on an earlier show. You'll see that all of these primary human rights improvements under the Aristide government vanished under the U.S. endorsed coups of 1991 and 2004. And of course, the invasion of Iraq in 2003. That along with the lengthy sanction period that preceded the 2003 invasion on false premises has left over a million Iraqis dead and has decimated the quality of life for the majority population to this day. Think of Libya, the country with the highest human development index in the continent of Africa under Gaddafi before we led NATO and intervened there and overthrew this country that now has been in shambles since our 2011 intervention with the return of slave markets and now a flourishing terrorist haven with decimated living standards for the majority population of Libyans. Coups in Ecuador, in Bolivia, and in Honduras in June of 2009. These all reflect, and you can show, that the people that were put into power by the West, by the United States, that the result to the majority population, if you look at these indices of quality of life, deteriorated very significantly. So I think in order to see through the propaganda, I I think of Ronald Reagan's statement, are you better off now than you were four years ago, is really the measuring stick that I think is appropriate to looking at how do people benefit or not benefit from change of governments that are facilitated by the United States. And in a half dozen nations that we just mentioned, it reveals a hidden truth that if democracy does benefit the majority, then our foreign policy has consistently disenfranchised that majority and enriched a minority. Yet we falsely claim we are promoting democracy. 
And just a couple of concrete examples from the same Center of Economic Policy Research, the co-director Mark Weisbrot wrote an article back in February of 2017 in The Nation about Ecuador. And he was mentioning you have this 10-year administration of Rafael Correa from 2007 to 2016, and you were an important part of that government and government effort. Uh, there in, in Ecuador in a citizens revolutionary party. And, and during that period, there was a 38% reduction in poverty, he writes. There was a 47% reduction in extreme poverty. Social spending as a percentage of GDP doubled, including large increases in spending on education and health care. Educational enrollment increased sharply for ages 17 and under, and spending on higher education as a percent of GDP became the highest in Latin America. The average annual growth of income per capita was much higher than in the prior 26 years, and the numbers he provides is a 1.5 versus a 0.6% change. Inequality, wealth inequality, that is, was considerably reduced, which I believe is the main driver of quality of life, not just by nation, but by the world. And public investment as a percent of GDP more than doubled, and the results were appreciated through new roads, hospitals, and access to schools and electricity. This empirical documentation, the, the majority of populations in these countries, as we've mentioned, Haiti, Ecuador, Bolivia, Iraq, Libya, and Honduras, all reflect the same tendency. So these are not aberrations that things get horribly worse. For majority populations in the countries in which we intervene and successfully get our government of choice in power. But it's documentation that that's what our foreign policy points at and points towards. The educational enrollment, we talked about public investment as a percent of GDP with new roads, hospitals, and schools, and access to electricity. These are the issues and priorities of the governments that we're trying to overthrow throughout the South, those that provide meeting basic human rights as a priority. The Gini Index or the Wealth Inequality Index also reflects this trend we're suggesting. Rafael Correa, when he was president for the 10 years of 2007 to 2017, he had Moreno serving as his vice president for a good period of that time, 2007 to 2013. And once the Correa administration ended, the U.S. choice and promotion resulted in a, a Moreno government that was U.S. friendly and poverty and inequality have risen under Moreno's tenure. A level of structural poverty has increased some 10% from 23.1% in June of 2017 to 25.5% in June of 2019. This is documented by Dennis Rogatuk in a October 2019 article where he entitled Ecuadorians Revolt Against Repressive U.S.-backed President Lenin Moreno and His Neoliberal Policies. Extreme Poverty also saw a rise from 8.4% to 9.5%, more than a 10% raise during the same period. This Gini coefficient we alluded to, a measure of economic inequality has or increased from 0.462 in June of 2017 to 0.478 in June of 2019, de demonstrating that Moreno's policies of reducing social spending has principally uh, benefited the rich. That in Bolivia, Evan Morales served from 2006 to 2019. In those 13 years, that in Bolivia, illiteracy was reduced from 13% in 2006 to 2.4% in 2018. 
unemployment rates were reduced from 9.2% to 4.1%, the lowest in the region. During the same period, moderate poverty was reduced from 60% to 34.6%, and extreme poverty reduced from 38.2% to 15%. By every major indice, you can see this trending, which I'm sure is reflected in life expectancy as well. But that in Bolivia, the government built more than 5,000 educational centers, more than 1,000 health facilities with this increase in GDP being dedicated to public sector, created financial assistance for the elderly, the dignity bonus and for children, the Juanacito Pinto bonus. It, it contributed to a significant increase in school retention, and the country became the fastest growing country in the region raising the GDP to $43 billion, up from some $9 billion in 2005 when the government took office. And then finally, when it was launched, because I, I do want to ask our guests to talk about some of these regional programs that have percolated and disappeared and are coming back in the region, but this regional integration concept that our guest has eloquently written on, we'll get to, but the Bolivarian Alliance for the Americas, ALBA, is its acronym. It was launched and it had just two members when it was launched, Venezuela and Cuba. And subsequently, a number of other Latin American Caribbean nations have entered into these people's trade agreements, uh, these TCPs, which aim to implement some of these principles of ALBA, which is this integration is like working as perhaps Bolivar would have wanted, where some countries have strengths in certain economic areas, others have strengths in other areas, and they combine their strengths to help each other. But this 10 member states as of November of 2022, as we speak now, have a population of some from these 10 member states of 70 million. Founding of the ALBA was back in December of 2004 by Venezuela and Cuba. Bolivia joined in 2006, Nicaragua in 2007, Dominica in 2008, Antigua and Barbuda 2009 and St. Vincent and the Grenadines in 2009 and St. Lucia in 2013 and Granada in 2014. And finally, the Federation of St. Christopher and Nevis in 2014. Also, Honduras was a member under Zelaya until the U.S. coup overthrew that government in which many of these same indices, all of the same of these indices that we just said about Bolivia that improved in Ecuador that improved drastically under governments that were opposed by the United States. Also under the Honduran Zelaya's administration, they improved drastically. And those changes were all reversed, including leaving ALBA after the U.S. coup. So the last comment just on ALBA is apparently there's three observer states, Iran, Haiti, and Syria. And apparently Suriname is a special guest member, which intends to become a full member. The last thing in the line of this integration concept and reflecting of that was this program, Operation Milagro, Operation Miracle, if you will, that was initiated in 2004. It's a program of international solidarity launched by the governments of Cuba and Venezuela in 2004, and it provided free medical treatment for people with eye problems. It provided countries medical equipment and infrastructure. It actually helped people develop their own abilities to provide for their own people in those areas. It served predominantly low-income patients. It addressed issues of cataracts and 
glaucoma, and a number of other eye issues of real great significance that afflict millions throughout Central and South America and throughout the world. This Cuban-Venezuelan project operated on more than 49,200 patients in Venezuela alone. By 2019, over 4 million people in 34 countries had received this free treatment through this program, and this is integrated into the program of ALBA. Anyhow, with that rather long introduction, I'm sorry to take so much time, but I just wanted to frame the issues. You've had these coups, you've had these progressive governments replaced by less progressive governments. Guillaume, we just had a really important election in Brazil, and Bolsonaro, after a couple of days, finally relented. He admits that the election now is over and that Lula da Silva has won this election of the past weekend by a narrow margin, actually, but a couple of million people, but like by a one and a half percentage points. You wrote what I was reviewing, what I thought was a really important paper in the context of this regional integration. It's called Toward a New Unisor, Pathways for the Reactivation of South American Integration, you were a co-author along with Natasha Suni. It was just published in October, October 18th of 2022. People can access it by going to the Center for Economic Policy Research. But I was wondering, the UNISOR, it's a Union of South American Nations. It lost a number of its nations over the years, but some are coming back. It kind of kept its structure. Can you tell us the significance of this Brazilian election and this integration and reintegration movement that we hope takes on more and more steam because in the past it has impacted in a positive way majority populations throughout the region. And again, thank you for joining us. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Yeah, so I think the election of Lula is very significant in a number of ways. Of course, first and foremost for Brazil, after four years that had been very, very tough well, with a government that is kind of global South equivalent of Trump, you know, but with with a, you know more precarious institutions in Brazil and more poverty and a number of things that at the end of the day, you do have institutions in the United States, some good, some bad, but you do have some institutions which kind of contain Trump to a certain degree, right? In, in Brazil, Bolsonaro was much less contained and, you know, he did a lot of damage. And yeah, he was kind of a tropical Trump, a lot of misogyny, a lot of racism, uh, terrible mismanagement of the pandemic and a sort of very sort of, I would well, neo-fascist kind of aesthetics and discourse and politics and, and Brazil being the largest country and, and population and economy in Latin America. Brazil had a real impact on the politics of the region. You know, after Trump was elected and then Bolsonaro was elected, the region really had a, a very sharp shift to the right with the two largest economies in the Western Hemisphere, the US and, and Brazil, going not just conservative, but going hard right, you know, even alt-right. So that was a really tough period, I would say, a tough few years for the Western Hemisphere, for Latin America and the Caribbean. The departure of Trump has helped some, somewhat. I think it's important just to say that Trump, in terms of his foreign policy, of course, was very erratic. So one day, one thing, the next day, flip-flopping. You know. But in Latin America, he was not very interested in Latin America. That wasn't his priority region. And so basically, he used U.S. Latin American policy as an extension of his sort of domestic arrangements within the Republican Party. So he handed over U.S. Latin American policy to this kind of Florida-based neocons of the Republican Party, essentially Marco Rubio and a few others, right? 
And this was very nefarious because whereas Trump, again, being very erratic, not really having a policy, but sort of intuitively pulled back from a number of places, including some places in the Middle East, in Latin America, the exact reverse happened. So you had a neoconservative agenda of asserting U.S. imperialism, I think we should call it by this name, and of really applying the Monroe Doctrine. So much so that they actually, you know, the U.S., the Trump administration actually spoke of the Monroe Doctrine, which is, really, which is a real taboo. You know, the Obama administration maybe applied some of its tenets, but did not speak openly of the Monroe Doctrine because it's very insulting to Latin Americans. So for those listeners who are not familiar with the Monroe Doctrine, this is a doctrine first presented by President James Monroe in 1823, which wasn't really applied in the 19th century because the U.S. didn't have the, the kind of muscle but the doctrine was essentially about the Americas for the Americans. So, you know, you Europeans, you know, stay out of this. This is our region, our hemisphere, our uh, continent. Um, but it was it became very relevant, well, after the the, the Roosevelt uh, corollary, the Theodore Roosevelt uh, corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, but particularly during the Cold War, right, when it wasn't so much against Europeans anymore who'd receded from their old colonial strongholds, uh, but it was mostly applied in the Cold War against the Soviet Union. So it was the Monroe Doctrine that was sought to kick out the uh, Russians out of Cuba and other places and so on and so forth. It was really an essential part of U.S. national security doctrine that the Western Hemisphere is a space where the U.S. dominates. And just in parenthesis, I'm going to go back to Brazil, but in parenthesis, some of the things that you said, it's very important to understand that U.S. doctrine in the Western Hemisphere, sometimes tacit, it's not always spelled out, but it's essentially about having a docile Western Hemisphere. And, and that's more important than having a democratic Western Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes you have both. You can have a docile and sort of liberal democratic Western Hemisphere. But if democracy means a threat to U.S. hegemony, U.S. predominance, U.S. power, then the priority for the U.S. is for the hemisphere to be docile, and if it has to be undemocratic, then that's fine. It's undemocratic. Right. And Guillaume, just real quick, I think this is yeah. really important what you mentioned with the Monroe Doctrine, because yeah. the whole precursors to U.S. involvement or dominance in that region were colonial powers that enslaved the indigenous populations. When you look at the wealthy nations of the world today, the European powers, the wealth of those nations came largely from the colonization of the Caribbean and Central and Latin America. Just one example, France and Haiti, when it was St. Dominique, that was their number one colony. In fact, it may have been the most wealth generating colony in the history of the world. And what you're saying is by 1823, the United States was becoming a heavier weight economically and militarily within the Western Hemisphere. And we're going to keep this neocolonialism, except we're going to kick out all the other neocolonialists. As soon as we are economically and militarily strong enough, as you mentioned, which did not occur until the early 1900s in the Roosevelt Corollary. This is our area. They were speaking to the UK and, and France and the original colonizers of the New World, Spain and Portugal. So, and I guess just real quickly, the connection between the uh, Monroe Doctrine and the days and the words of Simon Bolivar and his aspirations for this regional integration that you circle back to with your paper. Can you highlight a little bit about Simon Bolivar's vision and the time period in which that was relevant and continue, please? 
Yeah, yeah. So very briefly, I mean, the, basically the Mono Doctrine is built out of 1823, which is exactly when the Latin American countries are getting their independence, particularly in South America and the Andean region, which is where Bolivar is active, of course, because Bolivar was from Venezuela and he kind of liberated Colombia, Ecuador, uh, Peru and Bolivia, those, those Andean countries. And so the U.S. administration of James Monroe is seeing Spain being defeated and sort of republics being born in the Americas. And they, I mean, there's probably a, a side of the Monroe Doctrine, which is actually sort of Republican solidarity. And the U.S. has just had its own colonial war, post-colonial war, not to get to, to attain its independence, so maybe 40 years before, right? So so I, well, not all of it was probably out of just like a knee-jerk imperialism. Some of it was like genuinely anti-colonial. But of course, a significant portion of this was seeing the Spanish Empire crumble, uh, the Portuguese Empire crumble, European colonialism being challenged, not so much in the rest of the world, but certainly in the Americas, and the US thinking, well, we're the new sort of power in this hemisphere, and we want to make sure the Europeans stay out so that we can little by little certain our power. And that's, that was the Mono Doctrine. Now, of course, it didn't really materialize for a long time because in 1823, the US was still fairly vulnerable. The 19th century was mostly a, a century of a Western expansion in the United States and consolidating this model and a sort of north-south dispute. Dr. Long, we need to take a quick pause for the cause here at Co-op Radio. We'll be back with our very special guest to bringing light into darkness at Co-op Radio in just a flash. Don't touch that dial. 